Hey, what's up, man? Hey, how are you? I'm all right. I got there. You are. <laughs> How's it going, man? It's good to see you. Yeah, you too. You too. Things are okay. Can't uh, complain. Yeah, have have things I know outside of the gym, but have things been irregular for you at all with your um with your schedule, like with your work or anything, or has it been pretty normal? Um uh, I work remote anyway most of the time. So I mean I don't I haven't been traveling as much. Obviously, I had to cancel some travel that I had planned for work, but I mean the normal day-to-day stuff's the same. You know, I, I do my almost everything remote. So Yeah. Yeah, well, dude, uh, it's uh, it's definitely good to catch up with you. What yeah. uh, what's been um, you know, it's kind of weird. Like the first ten minutes of every podcast I do is like, so what have you been doing since the coronavirus outbreak? <laughs> Almost uh, stereotypical at this point, but um, it, you know, and then I ask people like what they've been up to, and it's like, well, you know, I've been my life's been a kind of on hold because it's like an unavoidable topic. But what have you been up to? Right. Yeah, I mean, probably the same story as most people for the first, you know, for the first month, I guess. Um, you know, I think all of us that do martial arts work are used to being on the go all the time, um, especially when we do this as a, as a second job or we do this as a, um, even if it's your primary job, but you have another job, you know, we're, we're always on the go. Yeah. So it, it was really weird almost in a, not unpleasant way for the first few weeks to to actually be home when it's dinner time and to eat when normal people eat and um you know to to actually sit down and watch a tv show and things that that people tend to uh tend to maybe overdo but um after a few weeks it it got a, a little tougher, you know, we, we all, we, to, to a degree, I think we all do this because we thrive on, on the hectic aspect of it. So even though it's nice to take a little bit of a break to, to have any sort of extended break, uh, away from what we do is, is tough. So, um, you know, I, the work part didn't change the, the being home part wasn't bad, but I miss what we do. I miss the community that we built and the teaching. Yeah. yeah, I know, man. That that was that was what got to be the hardest for me is just not just the interaction with people, but like the interaction with the members and the students at the gym. Like when I went to teaching online, like yeah, I miss my students from the college, but not in the same way it's not right. like I, I value them less but i i really thrived in that part of my life like working from home i'm like because i was joking around with people they're like all right brian we're gonna need you to go home and film your lectures and still uh, and i was like done i'm super prepared for this right right that's funny yeah you probably are or one of the more prepared educators in that in that sense because you're used to conveying things over that format. So, well, yeah. And honestly, it's, um, what's made me just like, uh, go outside of the box of how I was normally doing like my podcast and stuff, because 
like how I was doing it is I would like wait for some time when somebody like you or uh, Jack or whoever was in town and be like, Hey, we sit down podcast with me. So then I would only get like a few guests from outside of my immediate network a year. But uh, this has kind of forced me to, and I'm doing the new studio and I'm making a lot of changes right now on like how I'm doing things, but it's forced me to branch out and it's forced everybody, I think, to make like digital leaps. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it accelerated it for sure. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's funny when, you know, I'm older, but when I was a kid, the idea of having a video, the, the capability of video chatting was, um, was very futuristic and, and um, interesting. And by the time we got to, to where this technology exists, we're so, we're so unimpressed by technology in general. I don't think people utilize a lot of it, uh, especially this, this kind of medium. Um, you know, there are people that do obviously, but, but even the kids that grew up with it, you know, you think, Oh, it's just older people, but even some of the kids that grew up with it, they don't, they don't take advantage of this. They're used to texting and, and this face-to-face -face communication is not that important to them. So, um, it's interesting that it's actually forced us to a degree to adopt technology that was there and, and should have been earth shattering. And that we just didn't really care about that much to, to a degree. When was it that the iPhone came out? Oh, six, oh seven. Um, probably around there. Yeah. Okay. And I think Facebook was like oh five, oh six, And like both of those kind of technologies, uh, rising around the same time or those digital spaces, or just occupying the, the digital space. That is so new, if you think about it. I mean, we're talking 15 years that it's like, I remember watching YouTube in like, 09, and it being like, oh, cool, let's watch, you come over, let's watch videos on the internet or something like that. But it, I didn't even see the value then until it was like almost, you know, now it's like, well, yeah. But right. like back then with like people getting on YouTube at, at that time, like uh, when it was rising, mm -hmm. stuff, but it's still this super new. And, and then there's all these other technologies that are coming along and changing, going away. Uh, it's just constantly churning. I don't know if people just don't realize it. Like social media, like I didn't realize how big that was going to become or how integral a part of my business it would be, you know? Mm -hmm still super new and people can't really like postulate these grandiose ideas about it because it's so new and constantly changing. Well, and, and there's just so much technology too. like it. There was a point in time where technological advances, I think, didn't hit as frequently. So when VHS came out, it was amazing because nothing like that existed before. There was no other medium where you could watch a movie in your house, right? You, you waited for CBS to show Star Wars and, um, and you'd get a bunch of ads for coffee machines and things you didn't care about. And then VHS came out and you could watch a movie in your house on demand. And it was amazing. It was earth shattering. But now we have, because we're standing on the shoulders of all of those previous technological advances, we get so much technology on a regular basis. I think we're completely jaded to it, especially the kids that grew up with it. Um, you know, when you talk about that being 15 years and it not being a long time, that's a lifetime for some people. That's, that's either nine tenths of their life or their entire life. And so they, they've grown up with this and, and they're jaded because they see some new amazing technological advance every month or every, at least a couple times a year. 
you know, what the iPhone is capable of or the, the Samsung Galaxy is capable of is amazing, but, you know, we take it for granted and we expect it to do that thing because technology moves so fast now. Yeah, you know, I wonder how far, um, like with the podcast, and there is a, Microsoft has got some sort of device out there like that, but like to where there's like a, there are some basic cameras out there with apps, right? But like to where I can just like without my phone can film HD or 4K video really. Uh, and then like on that same device, upload it to the, to YouTube or to whatever platform you want. I mean, Spotify, I guess is going to become the next big deal for video. Have you been charting that at all? Not really. I, I saw that Joe Rogan just moved over to Spotify and that, that says something, um, you know, clearly there's, he's not going to do that for nothing. He's not going to do that for no reason. It's either a financial or a reach based benefit. So, I mean, I think some- that they pretty much said, Hey, uh, we won't censor you in the ways that YouTube has. Mm, and gotcha. there's, and it was a hundred million dollar multi deal or multi-year deal. And he retains all, uh, rights. Like he, he's basically just in a partnership agreement with them. Mm. So, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It is. You know, I mean, I, I t- like I have YouTube premium and I got YouTube premium mostly because that's like my primary place that I watch that podcast. And I watch a lot of documentaries and stuff on there for history, but mm-hmm. man, I'm like, I'm like bummed out. Like his library is not going to be on YouTube anymore. Right. So like I, I was showing um, some videos in the gym the other day on the TV there. And after every, like just a couple of two minute little clips we had set up. And after every one, I got an autoplay to Joe Rogan's podcast. Like that won't even happen anymore. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's frustrating. It's one of those, uh, one of those shift, but I mean, just got to move with it. Yeah. Well, it seems like this too. Uh, YouTube seems to be coming more of a place for children Mm. have you have you charted that at all um not really i mean i know that a lot of people make a lot of money or people that do either ridiculous videos or toy reviews or things that um uh you know that that do hit that audience i know that um but no i mean i i i I look for the things that i'm looking for which is mainly just content creators like uh, you know, Joe Rogan or, um, you know, John Thomas or, or ma- mainly martial arts people. I don't, I don't really do much outside of that space with YouTube. So um, yeah. I, don't, I don't track trends on it that well. Yeah. You know, like that's kind of what I've been deriving. It's like our martial arts channel does really well on YouTube. My podcast does okay, but my podcast crushes it. Um across the board on audio but on facebook video is where i get the the vast majority so i'm wondering if maybe spotify won't become a better uh a better platform in the future for that yeah yeah it's interesting i think people are on facebook i mean it's the same thing when we did zoom classes versus facebook live we actually got more traction with facebook live than zoom and i think it's i think it's just people are there and so they see it and they drop in you know it's it's uh it's more of a drop in mentality, whereas YouTube is more of a destination app. Well, and the, there seems to be the, like a war between all of these fat, uh, brands or companies that we're talking about. I mean, uh, Google and YouTube being apart from 
Facebook. And if I share my YouTube link on Facebook, it's not going to get traction. If I just put the video on Facebook and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's cause they, they have their own algorithms for monetizing your, your content and monetizing my traffic. So they, uh, you know, they, they want to create a walled garden for that to a degree. So I was, I was joking around with somebody yesterday. We were like watching a video like on my phone on Facebook is my buddy Colby. And then we got hit with an ad and, uh, and I looked at him and I, I was like, dude, this is what I'm trying to do to people. Right. And, and he was like, he was, he was laughing. I was like, but isn't that a weird thing? Like that you like, you want to like bum out somebody's video experience with an ad on your video. Like that's the goal. That's the end game for like uh, monetization. It's like, man, I got to get some ads on my video to bombard my audience with. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the current thing. You know, I, I'm, I'm curious what the thing will be in five years, you know, cause 30 years ago, 20 years ago, TV commercials were pretty much accepted as the advertising format, you know, that's, and, and newspaper ads, right? I mean, there was a point in time where there, there were only a few things that actually existed in terms of advertising and they were considered to be what worked. And now those, those are dying. I mean, if not dead mediums and all of these other there's there's just other things filling the void so it's kind of a question of what's going to be the next thing it is you know and one thing i'm starting to see that uh i remember when these started getting popular was the rise of uh not just digital signs but like the digital billboards you start to see them on the sides of the interstate and they can put uh you know it's like oh well hey here's this person and then, you, then it flashes to another one. And if it's on a straight stretch of the highway, you might see three little ads or something as you're driving by. But that's a that's a pretty good idea, I think. It's interesting. I'm curious. I, I, I'm not fascinated, but I'm curious what the um, what the return is on investment for, for those kind of ads. And I, I, I'm sure it depends on your business specifically. Like, you know, if you're a Stuckies that, that has a truck stop, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that is – extremely effective advertising yeah um, i'm seeing the casinos advertise yeah. uh on there but because uh, we're g- probably going to get a casino here in russellville is the the speculation but um for like shows like i see uh there we have one here on the highway in russellville and i see advertisements for like comedy shows in oklahoma concerts fights different right stuff like that. right right yeah I, I think there's definitely a right uh, you know that's the right medium for certain things you know, I, I, yeah, it, it is interesting. The, the digital ones, actually, I think if I was, in, if I was investing in an ad, I would be somewhat annoyed by that because if you drive by at the wrong time, you don't see it. You know, it's not a, you're renting a third of the, the time and, and that third may be the third, or, you know, or the, the other two thirds may be the one that you need for your audience. So I, I don't know that I'd be super crazy about that versus a static ad, but I true, true that, true that. And too, I wonder about this, like just uh, from an entrepreneurial mindset, I bet the people that were like, hey, I got a little piece of property, I'm going to throw up a digital sign. Because we have a, a mod- two moderate sized ones in town in Russellville that, that have a similar setup. But imagine whoever put those up. And I think this like Lamar is some advertising or media agency in Arkansas. But um, whoever put them up has got to be killing it. Like, hey, let me sell you these digital ads. Uh, and, you know, you're going you're gonna to run across here at this heavily trafficked intersection. But I bet that they, the clients they get are um, paying a premium, you know. I'm curious what 
the investment is on one of the giant ones though. I mean, a smaller, smaller roadside one, I mean, you know, in town, maybe a smaller one, but like a, a, an actual highway billboard, that's, I can't imagine that's cheap, but you know, I, I'm sure they, they had to do the math on how it would work out and, and they're not going to do it for nothing. So. Yeah. Well, and the ones I see too, I was talking to my son. Well, you know, my son guy, Nick, uh, he did, you guys. Mm. Son. Mm-hmm. And I was talking, I was like, Hey, have you noticed the rise in these digital signs? Are you guys going to do that too? Like with flashing across, like this, the social media icon. And just like, I'm noticing it, people are doing, it's not, it's not like a TV screen, but it's a furniture store and a bank. And, but he also pointed out, it's like, yeah, but like, they're not they the ones i've seen in town have problems with them you know there's like like pixelation issues or jammed up i've just seen repeated and he kind of brought that up and i wonder how much uh that will improve like how much are we going to have be able to have uh screens outside in like the four summers that we have in arkansas in the the cold winter months you know yeah yeah and that's the thing you know even if you do the math on what it would take to to build one of those and and how much advertising revenue you'd have to get to pay for itself you know what's the maintenance on what's the upkeep is that factored in as well because you know it, it's I, I think there could be a certain point where you've got to just replace the whole thing so i don't know um it, it's interesting but i think I, we've i think we've solved it honestly we've we have we have dissected the digital sign question in detail <clears throat> but uh yeah well man um so what you know like i i kind of uh do these martial arts themed spin-off shows so i don't burden my audience too terribly much with uh uh martial arts lingo and conversation with every single guest i have on the show and evidently it, it does come up uh you know, to all faults of my own, but man, honestly, I just wanted to like talk to you a little bit about some of the stuff you told me over the years, but like how you got involved with martial arts, like kind of when you started coaching more, like when you started, uh, like, well, when you purchased, uh, the gym and kind of, kind of just like what your story is starting with the early stuff, because man, even before, like when we were hanging out and like, 2009 2010 you know we were always talking knife stick all of these different martial arts jiu-jitsu too and you've you've grown and gravitated more i would say towards jiu-jitsu um or, or just you you know you've, you were doing it a lot more than early on when i met you right but yeah, sure. so so what's cool about that from my standpoint is that you just keep growing in martial arts as you and getting more involved as you get older versus a lot of times what people, you know, see doing less. So, yeah. but man, how did you get started off and, and where and all that? Sure. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, so I'm, I'm 48, so I'm, I'm old. <laughs> so I, I think most of the people from my time period that, you know, there were only a couple of things you could do with martial arts. You know, there was, uh, you know, there were traditional arts, you know, um, karate, taekwondo, and judo pretty much were what you could do. You know, anything that, that was outside of that was uh, was fairly esoteric, something you'd see in a magazine. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of, I think for a lot of us, martial arts seemed magical at the time. 
And I think to some people it still does, but I think because there are things like the UFC where you actually see competition-based martial arts, I think it's, it's less magical and more scientific to a lot of people. But I mean, um, I, what's the saying? Any, any science uh, that is uh, evolved enough seems like magic. You know, I, I think at a certain point in time, that not enough people knew how martial arts worked and, and just considered to be some cheat code. To, to be amazing and so as a kid I did you know I watched I watched martial arts movies Bruce Lee kung fu movies you know every Sunday we had kung fu theater stuff and I, and I love that stuff and um, I think there are a couple of different kinds of people that get into martial arts you know uh, especially now that martial arts have a much more competitive aspect you know there are there are former athletes that want some sort of athletic pursuit outside of school where they don't have one anymore and then there are people that don't have any sort of athletic background at all and see martial arts as as an opportunity to have a superpower you know to have something to to make them you know to give them some sort of athletic pursuit um that they just just wouldn't have any other way uh and and i was definitely in the latter category you know i was a i was a scrawny kid um did not have you know i moved almost every year till i was 18 years old. So, I mean, I, I didn't stay in one place long enough to do any sort of athletics or really any sort of activity. So, you know, when I was around 15, I started training, uh, you know, I, I did a little bit of, uh, of Shotokan when I was a kid, but nothing that would have really benefited me. You know, when I was 15, I, I started training Taekwondo at a, a local gym in Virginia beach where, you know, that, that's of all the places I lived, I lived the most in Virginia beach throughout my life. Um, and so I started training Taekwondo, um, and it, it, I actually was pretty good at it, which for someone who again had no prior athletic ability was, you know, it was kind of amazing. Um, and I really, I enjoyed being good at something. I think that's one of the things with kids, whether you get them into music or art or, or martial arts or sports, giving kids something to improve at and be good at is, is really important. I, I think it's, it's one of the ways we develop as humans to, to, you know, we don't want to exist. We want to improve. And so finding something where I could see that I was getting better over time and, and, you know, comparatively, I actually was good at what I did. Um, it, it was, it was a big life changing thing for me, you know, outside of just, just doing martial arts in terms of every other aspect of my life, it, it changed my perception of me. Um, and it happened that there are also a lot of people my age there. So there are a lot of 15, 16, 17 year olds. So I also found kind of a little mini community. And so between being new kid um, and, and needing a community and finding something to do that I could actually be good at, um, you know, it, and of course that age is, is a pivotal age for most of us as well. You know, we're, we're 15, 16 you know, so many things about our lives are changing, you know, that so, so finding that skill and um, progression and community at that time was extremely important for me. And I, I do, I know that I would have gotten into a lot of trouble because I got into trouble anyway, but I would have gotten into a lot more trouble if I hadn't had some of those influences and some, some people to turn to that I knew um, were not bad people and didn't judge me for 
you know, being a bit of a hooligan. Um, so, you know, circuitous route to say, which is how I talk about everything. Um, I started when I was 15 training Taekwondo in Virginia beach. So. Nice. Uh, so how long did you stay with Taekwondo? Uh, was it, uh, did you earn your black belt? Did you move? Uh, what it, came next? I did. And I, I stayed with it for a long time. Um, let's see, 15, 16, 17, 18. I, I trained until I was 18 at that gym and I competed. I did uh, a lot of, uh, Taekwondo competitions. Um, I, a couple of the people from the gym got into American kickboxing. And so, um, we did some some competition and a lot of um, training in you know the old school above the waist kickboxing rules, um, and then when I was 18, I broke my leg on a three wheeler, and so Damn. yeah, man, those I, things are super dangerous. It, it definitely was the way I drove it, but um, I, I I actually went down an embankment and came up between two trees, and my foot caught between uh, it caught on, on one of the trees and it snapped my uh, fibula, I guess. Um, so I was out for probably, I guess, six months. I, may, I was probably out for three months. And then um, I, I just uh, goofed off for another few months because when you're a teenager, you don't really have a concept of time. And when I went back, the, the, owners, the, the owners of the gym were a husband and wife and they had split because one of the owners was sleeping with the other owner's best friend. And so, um, at 18, when I was 18, I basically quit training for almost two years because my gym had disappeared. And, you know, so I just went on with life doing other stuff. Um, and then when I went to college, when I was, I guess, 20, um, you know, I, I, I'd done some community college stuff in Virginia beach. And then my grandparents wanted me to come go to college in Kentucky. So when I went there, I started teaching at a local gym. I, I trained for a few months and then he asked me to start teaching and I was teaching at a local Taekwondo gym there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I got, I got my black belt in Virginia beach. Um, and then I tested again for in a different organization, um, for, to, to teach there. And so, um, that was my, my history in that. And I taught there for probably a year or so. And, it, because it was on the college campus, I met a lot of college students that were coming in to do the course for credit because they, the instructor had it mm -hmm. at the university and he did the course. And so I would teach the college students that came in to do the Taekwondo class for, for credit. And one of them had been traveling about an hour um, to Paducah, Kentucky to train at a place called Three Rivers Martial Arts, which is uh, uh, they actually did jujitsu. And so I started going up there and they actually, when I got up there, I found out they, they did jujitsu and he had a Japanese jujitsu lineage, but I mean, it was, it was primarily ground-based jujitsu. And he also did uh, Kali and Jun Fan, right? So, and that's Jason Hawkins. And that's, that's actually years later, that's where I met Clay Mayfield. Um, but uh, and, I just, and I just I, had him on the podcast not too long ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Clay, Clay and I are buddies. Um, I've, I've, I've known Clay since he was a white belt, but I've, I've known Clay really well for the last few years. But, um, but yeah, that was, that was actually probably in uh, 95, I guess, when I was, uh, when I was going to Three Rivers. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't know if you, if you know Eli Knight, but he, uh, 
he was a skinny kid there and he's got a big YouTube channel now, but um, Jason Hawkins and Eli Knight were, were two of the people that I knew at that time period. Um, so I, I, for about a year, I would drive up there once or twice a week to train jujitsu and to do some Kali. And then one of the, during one stretch, um, Jason had a seminar with a guy named Jeff Westfall and Jeff is a, is a Muay Thai. He, it was a Muay Thai seminar. He's a full instructor under, under Master Chai. Uh, he's a full instructor under Dana Masanto. He's a full instructor for CSW under Eric Paulson. And he was these things back in 95. So he was way, way, way ahead of the curve. Just, you know, he, he had been an old school karate guy and got into, uh, got into Muay Thai going to seminars and, uh, that was my first introduction to Muay Thai. It was, it was in 95. Um, and what's funny is I, I actually, uh, my wife and I were working in a restaurant at that point and I had been, I, you know, I was looking forward to the seminar for weeks. I was cleaning the grill the day before the seminar and I got a piece of metal in my eye. So yeah, I had hot metal in my eye, sat in the emergency room for six hours and I ended up pulling it out and, you know, putting some sort of I don't know, eyeball lube in there. And then, I, and then they put an eye patch on me and they're like, yeah, you gotta wear this for a week. So I did my first Muay Thai seminar with an eye patch. And so, uh, you know, he would, he would teach something with the pads and then he'd go to the other side. He's like, all right, I'm gonna move so the pirate can see me from this angle. Um, but that was, that was my first introduction. Then I started driving up to Evansville, which was probably two hours from where I was. I, I would go up to Evansville to um, Jeff's gym, which was Rising Phoenix Martial Arts. And uh, do Muay Thai and you know I was I was a pretty good kickboxer and he commented that my my kickboxing was good but it it was clearly not effective you know American kickboxing versus Muay Thai was not um, you know I, I wasn't gonna be a world beater with that you know he he just wore me out with leg kicks and you know when, when I started doing clinch work you know all of that that literally was mystical you know when i was a kid and, and i saw martial arts at all you know when i saw kung fu movies and, and you know that stuff seemed mystical but when i started training against somebody that did muay thai it actually was mystical that was like this this is this is a a superpower that is attainable you know and so i was i was really interested in, in training muay thai at that point um and, and, you know, it's, it, it's after kick, the movie Kickboxer had come out, after Bloodsport had come out. And so, you know, we all had this idea that that stuff was out there, but it's still to a degree, you know, having done Taekwondo and knowing, having had a few fights, like um, I had a good friend that, that used to, when we would go running, pick fights all the time. And, um, you know, I knew it wasn't magic by itself, right? You know, there, there was uh, just being able to, you know, just Taekwondo and kickboxing, it, it was it was useful, but it wasn't a superpower. Muay Thai really seemed like a superpower to me. Um, just because it's so overwhelming when somebody's kicking you in the legs and somebody's clinching you, it's so overwhelming. Even someone that that's not as big as you or as strong as you. Um, so, you know, what's funny and, and, uh, hopefully we can make some comments on Sabat here in a few minutes, but I remember the very first time I sparred with you, um, I was kind of expecting you to do what you did some, you know, more Muay Thai stylistic type stuff, but you were also throwing crescent kicks and side kicks and spin hook kicks and spin side kicks. And I was like, Holy shit, I'm so overwhelmed right now. Like it was, uh, this would have been, um, 
when you guys were kind of over by Tzatziki's, right? Like back uh, around like when uh, that day when we were sparring with Pfizer and stuff, but, but maybe a little after that. But anyway, I just remember being like so overwhelmed by the unorthodoxy of what you were doing versus what I expected. Cause I knew you had such sick boxing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I tend to shift my style depending on who I'm going against, you know, if they've got better reach than me, if they're taller, um, you know, Muay Thai, I like, I like Muay Thai. I like the intimidation factor of Muay Thai. If you just keep going, if you just keep going at somebody, um, but you, you also have to be willing to tank a lot of shots. And sometimes, you know, I'm not as durable as I used to be. So sometimes rather than tanking shots, I, I would rather move and, um, you know, blitz from different angles. And so I do, I do play with some of the other stuff, you know, and over time, you know, some of the influences I've had, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like new toy. When, when I watch my kids, the new toy always wins. Right. So um, if they get a Darth Vader, Darth Vader is going to beat everybody else that, that they have. And so when I started training Muay Thai, everything else was garbage. Everything I'd ever done, everything I would, you know, everything else that I ever saw was garbage and Muay Thai was the best style in the world. And Muay Thai, I still think if you have to pick a style, I think Muay Thai is, is a fantastic, powerful style. But I mean, there's, if you watch matchups, you know, there's Dutch kickboxing, you know, Dutch kickboxing has answers for Muay Thai. Um, Savat, has answers for Muay Thai, although you have to understand that Savat has some significant limitations in, in that context. But, um, you know, and people, even people that talk about Taekwondo not being combat style, if you watch Koreans do Taekwondo, uh, Taekwondo is a combat style. You know, Kyokushin is a combat style. Kyokushin guys can absolutely knock out Muay Thai guys. You know, I, I think Muay Thai is a fantastic style. And, and again, if, if you had to choose one, pick Muay Thai. But, uh, there is validity in the way Kyokushin guys fight and the way uh, good Taekwondo guys fight and, and the way Savat guys fight, you know, so um, it, it's, I still love it and it's still my favorite, but I do teach elements of the other things. When I teach boxing, I typically teach, you know, if we're teaching hands, like in, in my curriculum, when we're teaching hands, I usually teach Dutch kickboxing because it's the best blend of what we do in terms of the, the kicking. Um, but using the short range elements of, of the, the, you know, the way they apply the, the boxing and the way the boxing interconnects with the low kicks is I think really important. So. What would you say some other differences are between Dutch style and just traditional Muay Thai? I mean, I feel like you're probably a good person to commentate on that. Yeah. Um, a lot of it is, uh, well, there are a lot of things, that change when you have a boxing heavy style, especially when you have, uh, when you use a lot of the hooks and a lot of the body shots like that, you know, Muay Thai tends to stay upright most of the time. And, and so the punches are going to be more linear. Hooking punches aren't extremely powerful because they're not loaded up from the hips. Um, you know, they're, they're not sitting so that their hips are, are bent and they're not angled so that their, their front foot is, uh, just creating that stop for when they throw punches. You know, if I, if I throw a cross and my, my foot is facing forward, my front foot is facing forward, I'm not going to be able to generate a huge amount of power because my foot is intended to go that way. So I'm going to be off balance if I'm throwing a powerful cross from my tie stance. If I'm in a boxing stance where my foot is more bladed, pointed 45 degrees, it creates uh, a resistance there. So when I throw the cross, my foot actually 
creates a little bit of resistance and, and stops me and returns, like reloads the spring back so that my next punch, you know, like my hook punch is powerful or I'm ready for another punch. But, you know, if I'm in too bladed a stance, it means that I'm going to get leg kicked and I can't effectively shield. So, you know, the, the tie stance is designed to do certain things. You know, it, it makes it easy to shield. It makes it easy to, to teep. Um, it, it makes my rear leg kick more well aligned, uh, my rear knee, my rear elbow, you know, all those things are more aligned by having my tie stance with my front foot facing forward. But it means my, my punches are not going to be quite as powerful. So the, the Dutch style, and of course, you know, Dutch, there, there is Dutch that aligns a little closer to Muay Thai and there's Dutch that uh, aligns a little closer to Kyokushin just because of the, the influences that the, the Dutch practitioners have had from, from different styles. Um, but the, I, you know, the big thing that I see is that the, the Dutch sit into their shots more. So their hips, there's more of a flex in their hips and knees than the ties. So when they load up for a hook, they're not loading just from the, the shoulders, you know, they're, they're hitting from the floor, you know, their foot, their knee, their hips all turn and they drive forward and, and in with the hips when, when they're hitting. So they generate a massive amount of power with their punches. Um, because they use the punches so much, especially the hooking punches, it means that their leg kick needs to be a little different. So the tie, the tie kick, generally when you're kicking with a, a roundhouse kick, you're driving the hip through first. So the, uh, whether my knee is, is locked or whether my knee is loose, my hip is driving through the target and then my lower leg is, is trailing that. With the Dutch style, actually, I'll push my knee through first, so my hip almost jackknifes a little bit. My, my hip will bend instead of driving, uh, driving the hip through first. Um, because I'm in such close range, when I hit with a, a powerful body hook, if I try to do a, a tie kick where I drive the hip through first, I'm going to impact with the top of my lower leg near my knee. So I'm not going to have much, much of an impact with my, my leg kick. If I bend at the hip, and I drive the, you know, I, I rotate over and I drive the knee past, then, you know, my entire lower leg is slamming into their leg uh, off of that. Um, so yeah, I would say a lot of it is, is, the, is the way they sit into their punches and then the way they kick with their low kick with that same bend in the hip, um, kind of like they're loading up with their punches. I, I think it allows them to generate a lot of power with the hook and it also allows them to generate low kick power from that extremely close range. What do you like? Uh, you mentioned elbows. I mean, is, do you think just like the uh, prevalence of more punches in the Dutch style uh, tends to lean, uh, produce like less elbows? I, I, is that even a true statement? I, I do feel like the Dutch use a little less elbow I, in the overall arsenal and traditional. I think it's just like jujitsu where we're, we're going to focus on what benefits us in the rule set, you know, in, in Muay Thai, uh, the clinch and the elbows, um, you know, they're, they're an important part of, of the style, you know, both, both from, uh, an entertainment standpoint and a, um, and a rule standpoint, you know, um, in a lot of the Western kickboxing venues, they remove a lot of those tools. Like you can't maintain clinch for more than one technique. You can't, you can't throw um, elbows in, in certain promotions. Um, you know, the knee has to be independent without a, a clinch. You know, there's, there's different things that 
impact, you know, from a rule standpoint that I think are more, you know, I, I don't think Dutch fighters, if, if Dutch fighters were fighting Muay Thai, I don't think they would not use elbows. I just think uh, in the, the European fight promotions, I think that they're probably choosing the style that, uh, uh, you know, wins them fights and, and is, is legal within that rule set. Yeah, that the stylizations definitely, um, I would say, has a lot to do with it. And I, I know that I mean, training primarily amateurs and hobby students and, and just a few pros over the years. But how, does that guide your methodology, like in the uh, on the mats, with how you teach people striking? Yes and no. I mean, so so teaching teaching hobbyists. I think the thing that changes the most for me is is clinch. Um, nobody wants to train clinch for any length of time. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that uh, people, people actually can train knees and elbows pretty safely. And I, I'm perfectly comfortable teaching people those. I make it clear you can't do that in sparring because I've seen people get their teeth knocked out with, uh, with elbows before. But, um, you know, if you're sparring, like in my old gym, when we would spar elbows, we would, you had to wear elbow pads and one person had to wear an actual face mask, you know, so we, we would do isolated elbow sparring where, where one person would um, one person would be focusing strictly on uh, attacking and defending with using elbows, but the other person had to wear headgear. Did you uh, use like the, the mask or the bar or yeah. What, what? Yeah, there, there were different ones, but the, you know, the, the one with the bar or like a plexiglass mask, you know, either one of those. Um, I, yeah, those, those would typically be the Did ones. Did you ever have any uh, incidentals or anything like that? No, nobody got hurt in the training. Like I said, I've seen people get their teeth knocked out in sparring with with uh, uh, elbows before, where someone just was careless. Um, but I've not seen. I mean, when I, when we were intentionally training elbows, it, it wasn't ever really a thing. I mean, I, and it's kind of what I tell people when you're when you're holding pads, it's like they go next, right? So um, you you wanna you wanna play nice. I mean, you wanna get your shots in, but it's really more about accuracy because if you hit somebody with an elbow, you're gonna hurt them. You know, there's not really a question about that. So when you're training elbows, when you're doing that light sparring, that, that uh, directed sparring like that, it's not really about power. It's more about landing the shot, you know, because if I can hit you with it, I can hurt you with it. That's not, it's not really a problem. So, you know, but I do pad work with, with elbows and knees and, and I, I'm very conscientious when we do elbows to, you know, I, I call out every time you're responsible for your partner's safety, hold the pads out a little further you know, don't, don't, don't hold the pads by your face. And, and, um, you know, so we're very careful with elbows. I do train those, but clinch, you know, aside from fighters and even a lot of fighters, nobody likes to train clinch. You know, I, I, I clinch is one of the most valuable skills, but people, if you, if you teach clinch for, for a couple of weeks in a row, basically you'll clear out your classes, you know? Um, Why do you think that is just like people don't like being that close that are doing striking. You think they want to maintain that non-connection in their training. What is it? Um, it, well, first of all, it's because if you do it wrong, uh, if you, if you're too aggressive, your neck is going to hurt like hell for the entire week. So, I mean, that, that's definitely a part of it. Um, and then part of it's the same reason that most jujitsu guys won't show up for a wrestling class because it's hard. Um, you know, and, and everybody that walks into train kickboxing is not there to, for it to be hard and that's okay. You know, that, that's the, you have to, you have to understand if you're teaching if you're coaching fighters and your sole goal in life is to coach fighters, then you coach fighters and those people aren't welcome and that's okay. But if you're teaching normal humans, 
you have to accept that normal humans have limitations on, on what they're willing and capable of, of dealing with on a normal basis, you know, and somebody that's going to go sit in an office or, you know, do almost any other job once they walk outside of the gym doesn't want to not be able to look to the left or the right because their neck hurts, you know? So, um, yeah, I think it's just comfort zone. I mean, it's, it's difficult and it, it also tends to go a little beyond what the average hobby practitioner, um, wants to put themselves through. So, um, and, and you know, with any of this, if you get that casual hobby practitioner in the same room as the person that wants to fight or wants to, or thinks they want to fight, now they're going to go overboard. That person will go overboard with your hobbyist, um, to, uh, to try to prove that they're good to clinch, you know, and instead of when you watch the ties, when you watch them spar, you watch them do clinch, they're playing, you know, they, they legitimately are playing with the technique. They're, they're using technique against technique and not strength against strength or strength against technique at any point in time. You know, it's very uncommon to see ties do, do standard sparring or clinch sparring where they're trying to overwhelm the other person with, with strength or power. Um, but people that don't grow up with that or people that aren't, aren't in that environment constantly don't always understand that. And then, you know, tend to make it challenging for their training partners. Um, so. Man, one person I have always admired their clinch and uh, you might even have told me about Greg Nelson. I don't know. Right. I can't yeah. remember when I started watching that guy and it might've just been like looking up clinch stuff, but I remember forever he had like these little snippets of his, uh, his very first clinch DVD he put out. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't even remember what year it was, but um, it's pretty old. Yeah. But his one, clinch work is so amazing. One of my old training partners is his Uki in that. Like, yeah. yeah. It, does that guy like pretty much run the, run his gym now? If I'm not mistaken. Well, no, this guy, it's a, it's an Asian guy with long hair. He's wearing, like yeah. his name's Mike Moses. He's got his own gym in uh, Maryland. Oh, that might be what I'm thinking. Cause I've seen him kind of <laughs> engaging. Yeah. I didn't know if he was still out of uh, Nelson's. Dude, I didn't know this until I started. Uh, I was listening to Greg Nelson on a podcast the other day. You know, he survived cancer twice. Yep. yep. Wow. Yeah. And, and a really aggressive cancer too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, his, he's, he's legit. I mean, he's, a, he's a full instructor under, under um, Master Chai. And, and I think some, some people don't love the TBA because the TBA is, is Americanized to a degree. Um, and, you know, they, I think they've done what they need to do to try to create a curriculum and a teaching methodology in, a, in an organization. Um, as opposed to having it be on a per gym basis, which is the way that, you know, if you teach boxing, your boxing gym is probably entirely a product of who you train boxing under, and it's its own unique animal. You know, it's, it's not like you're necessarily going to be part of a boxing franchise, right? And, and martial arts in the United States is more of a, a franchise thing, typically, you know, you're, you're affiliated with someone from whom you're knowledge and rank and everything else um, flows. And so the TBA to create that has changed things about how Muay Thai is, is trained in some respects. Um, but Greg Nelson is, is as legit as it gets. I mean, he's, he's fought Muay Thai. He's trained people, you know, between his wrestling background and his Muay Thai background. Um, I, I think he's one of the, he's probably one of the best 
guys to teach clinch in the U.S. I mean, he's, he's just really, really good. Um, definitely underrated. Uh, but, I, I, yeah, I've seen him. Um, my One of my instructors in Virginia Beach was under um, Eric Paulson. And, again, uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Westwell had also been under Eric Paulson. And so I trained a few times at seminars with, with, um, with him and – watched a lot of his materials, you know, for after training with him, you know, I wanted to watch a lot of his materials and I watched a lot of his camps and things. And so Greg Nelson typically teaches a lot of the striking and the striking based grappling like clinch and, and MMA grappling. Um, and I, I've always been super impressed by both his, his skill and the way he teaches. Um, yeah, he, it's, he just has a really basic, but yet profound way of breaking it down. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you mentioned like a, a MMA style clinch because he does things that would be illegal in Thai rules, but it's like he trains everybody, kickboxers, right. MMA. So it's right. like, like a hip throw, for example. I don't think you can turn around like that in right. Thai rules. Right. But his, his pure Thai clinch is also very good though. Like his, his pure Thai clinch and his ability to teach a pure Thai clinch is, is really good. Uh, but it happens that he teaches a ton of MMA folks and he, you know, because he's got a great wrestling background and a great MMA background, he can also incorporate a lot of that into his, into his tie-ups. So very, very dangerous guy. And I think such a, a good uh, resource, you know, it's, I think if he, if he wasn't in one of the coldest places in the country, he probably would be more, more renowned as an MMA coach. You know, he, he's obviously well-respected within the community, but I think he would be more known commonly like Greg Jackson is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been really enjoying. He's been putting out a lot of content, uh, shadow boxing videos and stuff during the uh, shutdown. It's it's been nice seeing uh, some of the stuff he's put out and just uh, accompany my uh, repertoire of stuff I picked up from him over the years. Yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah, I think McFan, Martin McFan, I think is under him for. Uh, uh, I don't I don't know exactly how he's affiliated. Well, I say I say under him. I know that he has, he's been friends with him for a long time. I didn't realize this until a few years ago, but, um, you know, I've known McFan, uh, casually, but I, I didn't know him very well. You know, I'm not, not from here, so I don't know much about him, but I, I was at an Eric Paulson seminar in Tulsa and ended up partnered with him. Um, and first of all, he's, he's got a really deep knowledge of grappling. Um, and second of all, he's buddies with those guys. Like he's, McFan is like, he came up with um, Eric Paulson and Greg Nelson. Like when those guys were chasing seminars, he was, he was one of their friends, you know? And, and so they, you know, just seeing how uh, like he and, and Eric Paulson were, were like legitimately buddies when they were talking. I, and that was interesting to me because I've, I've been a fan of Eric Paulson's forever and I, I've trained with him on a few occasions, but um, you know, clearly don't know him to that degree and so and, and McFan actually knows a lot of the people like he knows Jeff Westfall he knows uh um he he knows some of the people uh he knows Frank Cucci that I used to train with so he um it, it was he's actually in the you know how um when you get a batch of students you get four or five people in at the same time and they come up together they're kind of a clique right they're kind of a group mm -hmm. um and he's I think he's in the clique or in the group like the generation right before me, you know, he's, he's in my instructor's generation. You know, I think, I think like Danny Dring, Mark McFan, Greg Nelson, Eric Paulson, um, 
you know, a, a lot of those guys came up in the era right before me, basically, you know, so, uh, but he knows, he knows a lot of the people that, uh, that I've trained with, which, which was interesting to me, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's the first time I, it's probably been four or five years ago now. And I mean, maybe more than that, I've, I lose track of time sometimes, but, um, you know, it's the first time that I've really trained with him to any degree, but, uh, um, I, I was, he, he had a really good knowledge of, of grappling from what I could tell, just, just being his partner for, for the day. So, yeah. You know, Caleb and Mike trained with McFan a lot, uh, back in the day and McFan was going to come to, and do a seminar at Caleb's in 2007, if I'm not mistaken, in Clarksville, this would have been mm -hmm. probably the same year that we met and McFan like broke his toe. He broke his big toe or something crazy like that training. And, uh, I'd already paid and everything. 50 bucks. I was excited, but I never got to train with him, man. It's kind of, kind of always bummed me out. I, I, the only time that I've trained that I've, besides that, that I've trained with him, you know, that was the only time I've trained one-on-one -on -one with him, but he did, uh, he did a session at one of Caleb's retreats. Um, I think oh, yeah. he did a alley session. That, stuff. that was the year I opened my gym and I, we did one day of the winter camp and then I, I left and I missed that session. I missed the Aikido session with, uh, uh rappy there uh, there's a couple of things i was pretty bummed out i didn't get to go to yeah 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 it's funny i i met caleb about that um a little bit before that i think i think i met caleb and shortly after i moved to arkansas i mean i moved here from virginia beach in about 2005 and uh at the time i think most of the people in little rock were still at at danny's um I don't remember. That would have been about the year that he, 04, 05, that Caleb started uh, hanging out with Drew. Yeah. Well, I, I was I was going by there and doing uh, day classes once or twice a week when I would, because there was, at the time I hadn't found anywhere to train in Conway and I was working in Little Rock. So I would go by LDMA and train. And I remember Matt Hamilton was there. Um, and I remember, um, I remember Willie was there, you know, so when I would go train in classes, you know, Matt, Matt would be there. Willie would be there. Um, I didn't know Roly at the time and, and I'm, I'm sure he was there and I just didn't know him cause I, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was only there every, you know, one, once a week, once every couple of weeks. But, um, the, uh, that was the year. So, so, Danny did a seminar in Nashville and I went out there and I don't remember if it was 2005 or 2006, but I actually drove out to do, to go to the seminar with him and um, Willie and Jory both got their black belts there. So I was there for both of them to get their black belts and um, I roomed with Caleb. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. Caleb needed, Caleb needed a roommate. And, and so I roomed with Caleb and at the time it's kind of funny because he was talking about how, he was trying to decide what he was going to do in terms of, and, you know, I don't think we were, th we were using the term affiliation at the time, but, you know, he was trying to, to determine where he wanted to go, you know, and, and Danny at the time was saying that, that Caleb had an amazing amount of potential, you know, if he just had the right structure, I guess. And, uh, you know, I guess he decided LDMA was the right fit for him shortly thereafter. Um, because he had been kind of a Ronin, you know, he'd been bouncing around a little bit trying to decide where he wanted to go. But, um, that was, that was, I think, I don't remember if the, if he had already opened the Clarksville gym or if he was about to open the Clarksville gym. 
I think they started in that building, which I would have met you at in 04, if okay. I'm not mistaken. But I could be wrong on that. I started training there in 06, and I know they had been there for probably a couple of years. So that, But they had started for before that, oh, man, like maybe even late 90s, they mm-hmm. were training in this tool shed. Yeah. yeah. But, well, I know, I know Caleb was driving out to Little Rock to train with, uh, with Danny at the time, and I just don't think he had decided what he wanted to do in terms of, you know, affiliation, it, it, you know, to use that term. So, um, clearly he's done amazing things since then. But, uh, uh, yeah, that, that was the first time I met him. I, I thought he was a super interesting dude. I mean, I, I really enjoyed meeting him and hanging out and talking, so – yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know. Um, I didn't know how you guys had met or went or anything. That was so, it. At what point? Uh, you know, one thing about you that's always fascinated me that's come up like every time we've ever had a conversation about striking because you're about the only person that I personally know that has any uh, training or knowledge of any kind other than just a passing. Oh yeah, I saw a video on it about Savat. Oh sure. How did you get plugged into that? So Eric Paulson, uh, you know, again, it's uh, Jeff, Jeff Westfall was under Eric Paulson in 95. When I moved to Virginia Beach, I started training in a place which at the time was called FDC for Functional Defense Concepts. And it was later changed to Lynx Academy of Martial Arts. Um, and Lynx was, it's kind of funny when I was, uh, and, and this is going to be a long story to get to a short answer, but um, when I started training at Lynx in 96, um, or at FTC at the time at 96, I had actually watched some of this guy's videos that owned the place. So when we were in, when I was still in Kentucky, we would go into the racquetball court and we had these VHS videos from this Navy SEAL guy and we were trying to do all this stick and knife stuff um, because it was in the video. And, you know, the guy's in fatigues, he's got, you know, like fatigue pants and black t-shirt and it's this Navy SEAL that's teaching um, it's an old Panther video, right? Um, um, Navy SEAL combatives or whatever. And he was teaching stick and knife work. And it was, you know, just basic collie stuff. Um, but I, you know, I went and I started training. You know, I walked in the first time and they were doing stick and knife stuff. And I was blown away. I'm like, oh, my God, this is, you know, the mysticism again. Because they were really good. Um, and so, you know, they, they did um, uh, collie. They did Muay Thai. And they did uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And also they, they were one of the first that I'd seen where it was a big Brazilian jiu-jitsu school. They were a Pedro Sauer school. And so I went there and started training. And I think it was 97, he had Dan Inosanto in. And Dan Inosanto had Eric Paulson as his Uki at the time. And so it was, and it ended up being a half Inosanto and half Eric Paulson seminar. And so I knew, I, had, I knew who Eric Paulson was because I'd seen him in fights. And when Jeff, Jeff was training with them and I saw him, uh, on, uh, one of those cage fights, it, I guess it, it must've been Shudo, the one, did you see the one where he got his ponytail pulled up? Oh, that, I tell people about that all the time. Cause me having long hair now that is like burned into my, like every time I grapple, I'm like, Oh man. Right. Pull my hair. right. When I talked about training with Eric Paulson, you know, the, the two things I knew about him are one, he got his ponytail pulled out and two, he absolutely hammer fisted the snot out of somebody's nuts in a, in a match to get an arm bar. He was holding an arm bar. So he had, a, he had a, um, an arm bar from the top and the guy was holding his hands. And so his, his way to, to cause him to release his hands is just to let go with one and just hammer fist his nuts. 
until the guy let go and then he armbarred him and finished the fight. And so, yeah, I know exactly. Right. That's that's truly mixing your martial arts. And so uh, that, those were the only things I knew about Eric Paulson. And uh, then I ended up training with him, just crazy grappling stuff. I think it was, I literally think it was octopus guard. And I had, I had, you know, six months combined probably of, of, you know, less than a year of, of once a week standard jujitsu training. Um, just no, the, the very most basic 10 position or 10 technique, you know, things out of jujitsu. And so everything he did was completely over my head. Um, so on the one hand, I was a little frustrated. On the other hand, I was kind of blown away by the guy. Um, one of my, one of the guys that was there at the gym at the time, ended up running links for a while and then starting his own gym. His name's Buck Grant. And he, he went under Eric Paulson for, uh, for CSW, for, for his grappling uh, no-gi stuff. And as part of that, he started training some in, uh, you know, in Savat with uh, Nikolai Sanyak. So Eric Paulson at CSW, there, there's a, a French – a uh, French gentleman by the name of Nikolai Sanyak. He's a, a silver glove. He's for the longest time, and it may, it may still be the case, but for the longest time, he was one of two silver glove um, instructors in the United States. So he was the highest level of, of uh, there, there are two paths in Savat. There's a fighter path and there is an instructor path and the glove colors are different. And I can't say that I remember exactly the, the colorations of, of both branches, but the instructional branch, Nikolai fought, um, but he also is the highest level of instructor you can be in Savat, and he's in the US. Um, so, you know, he's one of two, and, and he taught, and may, I think he still teaches, I don't know if he still teaches all the time, but he still teaches out of, out of uh, the CSW um, in Fullerton, and um, does seminars all over the place, and so, Buck had trained with him, I think. Uh, I, I don't know if it was at a seminar or at, uh, at the actual headquarters, but um, I, I know Buck did the, the camps for several years, so it was, you know, it was potentially at the camps. And so Buck would bring back, uh, when, I, when I went to his gym, uh, he brought back some of that. And so I had a familiarity with it. And then uh, a few years later, I guess it's probably maybe, maybe four years ago now, um, I went to, uh, at one of the Anasantra seminars, I met someone named Liddell Elliott, and he's, uh, he's out of, he has a, a gym in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Um, for a while, he was under Christian Durr for, uh, for jiu-jitsu, uh, which is another story, actually. You know Christian Durr? In, uh, I heard that name, like, as soon as you yeah. said it. That sounds super familiar. Um, he's Team Clinch in Oklahoma. Okay, yeah, I know, yes, I know who you're talking about. Uh, is that Matt Vernon's instructor? I, I don't know for sure. Um, I I know he's a Jean Jacques Machado black belt, but he actually was at Lynx uh, at the same time as I was. He was a, a he was a SEAL or a UDT um, at the time. I was at Lynx in somewhere between '97 and 2003. Um, so I knew him from back then, and I I, I talked to him. I've talked to him several times at, at uh, tournaments just to say hi and. Um, yeah, I know this guy. Yeah, and so he he actually primarily did Muay Thai at the time, but he he did some jujitsu as well, and apparently got got deep into jujitsu, and uh, 
you know, when he got into the Navy, he went back and started Dean Clinch. But, but in any case, Liddell was under him for a while. So none of my short stories are short, so I don't know how this fits into a podcast format. But this it's, is, it's good. Uh, this is this is why people started podcasting. I think is because you know we we can rewind it if we forget part of it. <laughs> so uh, I was at an Enosanto seminar. I, I think it, it might have been one of the ones I took Freeman to. But um, you know, for people that don't know, Dan Enosanto was one of Bruce Lee's training partners, and he Bruce Lee taught Dan Enosanto Jin Fan Kung Fu. Enosanto um, shared with him, the, the Filipino Kali stick and knife fighting style. And so for people that watch Bruce Lee movies, he was the guy with the two sticks that fought Bruce Lee in the, whichever movie he was climbing up through the different um, levels of the house and fighting all the different guys like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But the guy with two sticks was, uh, was Dan Onsanto. Um, he's also been, been one of the choreographers for a lot of movie. I think, I think he assist did assistant choreography with the book of Eli and, uh, he was in a Steven Seagal movie, fought Steven Seagal in, in, in one of the movies. But Dan Inosanto, just he's just legendary. You know, he's in terms of sharing Filipino, uh, the Filipino martial arts, you know, he's one of the, the pioneers of that. Um, some people don't love the fact that he, he blends different styles. Uh, you know, purists just like people that say karate is karate, taekwondo is taekwondo, you know, it's especially in the earlier days uh, of martial arts in the US, the, the idea of mixing things, it, it took away from the, the purity of the style. And so sometimes he catches flack over that. But I think, I think in general, if you took a poll, most people would, would love him for what he's done for martial arts and, and for martial artists. You know, he's just a, he's a good person. But um, because he's, he's also, you know, he's a font of knowledge and he's a piece of history. I try to train with him when I can. And I've driven as far as Jeff's gym in Indiana, uh, which is about seven hours from here. Um, but many times I've driven to Tulsa because it's only four and a half hours and he, he does a seminar there every year. And so one of the years I was there, um, I met a gentleman named Liddell Elliott and, uh, you know, just very pleasant conversation and, and we exchanged information and, and he shot me a message saying, Hey, I, I know you talked about, um, training with, you know, some of your instructors had CSW, um, backgrounds and I'm going to have Nikolai Sinyak out. And so again, this is about four years ago, I went out to the, the public seminar and he's like, yeah, we're going to do a public seminar, which is going to be, uh, I think two and a half hours or three hours. And then there's going to be a private testing afterwards where, um, you know, we're testing people that, that have some experience with this. And so, um, I went out and trained for a couple hours and, um, you know, Nikolai stopped me afterwards. And he's like, Hey, you know, I, I see that you do, you, you know, sometimes you take Muay Thai stance, but then I see that you, you actually move Sabat style, you know, because I'll switch into when I'm trying to maintain range, I'll, I'll sometimes use the Sabat style of, of fighting. And, and I said, yeah, you know, my, one of my old instructors uh, had trained under you at, at some point. And, you know, and since then I've gone back and tried to um, analyze videos. Like there's, there's some, there's some really, really good matches on, online. Um, now, you know, that's a, that's a beauty of YouTube, right? We, we can go back and see things that, you know, when I started martial arts, even if I had heard of Savant, there's no way I could have gone back and seen how they fight. Um, and now I can. And so, he, he was impressed that I, I knew a lot of the, the terminology and I could use the, the techniques in the way they were intended to be used instead of trying to um, 
just do what I, what I'm good at. Um, you know, it's, it's hard. One of the hardest things when you're, when you do martial arts is to go and, and be a pure student where what you do is not what's important. You know, what you already know is not important. What you're, what you're there to learn is what's, what's important. And so, you know, I was genuinely doing the, the techniques the way he was teaching them. And so he actually invited me back to, to train at the second half of the seminar, which was, um, you know, private for, for the people at that gym that were testing for, for rank. And so uh, I ended up training with him for another almost four hours. So that, that was a lot of fun. And uh, he's, he's really a good, he's a good instructor. He's got a lot of great drills, um, moves really well. I mean, he's, he's probably 10 years older than I am and uh, still moves amazingly well when he's, when he's sparring. So, but. And any, I've just always admired uh, Sabat. I think I got probably first heard about it, like uh, researching into JKD styles and some of the mm -hmm. same people you're talking about. But, and mm -hmm. then it's like, it would come up in conversation with us and it's just, it's always been super fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Bruce Lee credits fencing uh, for some of his, his movement, but honestly, if you watch the way he kicks, like his sidekick, when he throws the sidekick and he throws the arm up like that, that's Sabat. That's the that's old school Sabat. The way they would uh, they would counterbalance the the kicking. So yeah, Sabat is interesting. I mean, it's Sabat's a very mobile style. Um, it's closer, and I think probably the reason that it, it it was easy for me to adapt to is it's more similar to American kickboxing. You know, the way they slide um, when, when they're kicking, they'll lift the leg and then slide into the, the kick. And that's very much like the way we fought in the eighties. The, the difference being, they also have the low line kicks. So mm -hmm. you, you can't kick with the shin, you kick with the foot instead of the shin, but, uh, they do have low line kicks. So it, it, it changes, you know, it's kind of a blend of, uh, of styles in that sense. But, you know, of course they wear shoes as well, which changes the dynamic a little bit you know, the, the target area, if you're wearing shoes, you can, you can kick in ways that would be a little more dangerous if you're not wearing shoes. Um, as someone who's broken my toes probably four or five times, um, it, I can tell you that some, it's somewhat dangerous, but I, I like the precision of Sabat, you know, for me, the, um, being able to liver kick somebody, uh, that's, that's one of the, that's one of the beauties that the oblique kick, like the kick that John Jones uses um, when he people in the kneecap, you see a lot of the, a lot of the Jackson Winklejohn guys like John Jones and Carl's Condit, they use that, that oblique kick. That's from Savat. That's a coup de pied by. So, you know, Savat, Savat techniques by itself, I, I think Savat has some challenges, you know, it, it, it relies on, attributes to an extent because you have to be fast and it helps to have long legs. I don't by any stretch, but in conjunction with another style, the, the movement and the precision of Sabat is, is extremely useful. I, I find it. Uh, that's, that's what I go to. If I'm, if someone, if I feel like someone has the capability of overwhelming me, especially with boxing, my, my two primary go-tos are either going to be to clinch and, and use superior clinch or if I feel like they're stronger and I don't want to clinch with them, then I'll just use spot movement and try to stay outside and, and kick the shit out of them. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely a fan and I, I think it's, I think people, it, it's a good compliment to Muay Thai in the sense that it's a long range kicking style and Muay Thai really only has the, the teep and the long or the Thai sidekick as it's long range techniques. And so 
adding in the, the savat kicking and the savat movement so that you can get in and out with that kicking, I think is, is beneficial. For sure. For sure, man. Well, hey, so I kind of got to wrap it up and go teach private lesson not in here in about 30 minutes, but um, maybe uh, we can roll a couple of the other topics I want to ask you about for a future episode in a few weeks or something, if you would be willing to, to come back yeah. on one of these days. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I tend to tend to, to go long on my answer. So if you have, if you no, have, no, no, no. Well, that I'll just tell you and we can plan for the future. I was wanting to talk to you about jujitsu, but now we can just do a jujitsu episode. We'll call it a jujitsu episode on down the road, but man, and, and, um, your neck injury, like overcoming that, I remember talking with you through your neck injury and that issue having with your orbital bone. Um, and you know, like I just said, I mean, I'm not going through it like you are or whatever but like just the the aging process of martial arts anybody that's ahead of me i'm 33 now i'm like hey what was this like for you uh and, and you doing more jujitsu as i've known you that's also inspiring to me because it's you know it's just kind of like oh yeah he's picking up more things even in spite of um overcoming injuries and stuff yeah yeah so, no for, that'd, that'd be cool yeah, well, we'll uh, we'll chat about that on down the road then. And talk about the gym a little bit and stuff, and just keep the uh, the progression going. But man, uh, I I really do. I re I'm glad we got to talk about all that striking because that's been. I mean, I feel like that's what I commonly am always bugging you about. So yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, even I, I've been here since 2005, but I mean, I still travel. You know, I still try to learn from anyone I can, you know, when, cause I, for the longest time I was traveling constantly for work. So, I mean, I, I do drop into other gyms when I'm, when I'm traveling and still try to bring back new tricks. And I mean, it's even, even having more striking experience than jujitsu experience, I, I don't consider myself to be an expert by any stretch. And so when I, when I'm able to train somewhere like, you know, I, I, for, for three years running, I was in Boston every year. And so I was able to go to city of tongue for, for a week at a time for those, those years and then uh you know i been to a couple places in vegas got to train with master toddy's son a couple of years ago which was one of my favorite private lessons i've ever done honestly um blending because he, he has a, a really interesting you know he's a pro boxer in addition to being a, a muay thai fighter oh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't know that yeah he's fought on some golden boy cards and stuff so training under him and you know he's also a smaller guy um and so working with him and learning how he incorporates his boxing into his Muay Thai was really interesting. And, and honestly, people discredit Master Tati sometimes because he's, um, you know, he's, he's a large fellow and he, he's somewhat into the, the self marketing aspect of it. But, you know, people, what people seem to forget is that everybody that taught in his gym, uh, like Regina Carano and Kevin Ross came up, everybody that taught at his gym, you know, they were pro fighters. They were like retired pro fighters, champions, you know. Um, he he was constantly surrounding his team with those guys. His kid grew up with that. I mean, they're and, – and the things that he teaches are legit regardless of how you feel about his, his marketing, I guess. Um, yeah. Where is he out of, Houston? Well, no. So Master Toddy um, – Master Toddy is in, uh, he's back in Thailand now. He was in Vegas. So uh, he was down the street. When I, when I went to, out to Extreme Couture, he was actually right down the street from Extreme Couture. Um, at, at, uh, this is probably 2007, 2008. Um, 
if I remember right. But uh, he, he went back to Thailand and his son still lives there in, in Vegas. And um, he was teaching out of a jujitsu gym for a while. And I think now he's just doing private lessons. But, nice. uh, yeah, the, at the time when, when Extreme Couture was there, um, one of my friends was training there, uh, was fighting, he had about 40 fights out of, out of there. And uh, Gina Carano and Kevin Ross were both there at the time. So that was when she was coming up. Bill, Bill Barton and Little Rock um, remembers yeah. like he's, he was, he did some editing for that show when, uh, when Master Tani did that show. And, um, and, and my old instructor was actually on that show. He's one of the coaches on that fight girls or tough girls or whatever it was that, uh, uh, that had a lot of those female fighters on it. So, um, but yeah, Master Tati, people, people don't always give him the respect that he deserves because he's, he's brought up some champions and I think his methodology was sound for teaching and, and his son, like his son, Dale, very legit fighter, but really a great trainer. I and mean, I really enjoyed training with him. If I was, I would absolutely pay to train with him. If I was there, you know, I do private lessons with him all the time because he's, he's got a, a good, a good fighting style and he translates it well with his teaching. So, but I, you know, that's, that's another somewhat roundabout way of saying, I try to not be stagnant, you know, even though it's, uh, it's, it's tough when we work and we teach and we um, have families and lives. It, it's hard to also take time to improve so that we can bring something new back to people. And, and I, I try not to take for granted that what I know is, is adequate. You know, I try to go out and find new sources, new people to train with. And, um, you know, e even, even striking, which I have more experience with than jujitsu. I, I try to, to find new things to, to share with our team. So, yeah. Well, man, you've always, uh, you've always had new stuff to tell me about. And, and I, I know I've repeatedly bugged you about the old stuff a few times also. So, cause it just keeps, uh, you know, you reinterpret stuff as you take more things in. So, yeah, sure. Well, Hey man, again, thank you so much for taking the time. And, uh, I'm actually not teaching college this summer. So maybe things get back to normal. We can, uh, uh, get together for some coffee or, That'd be awesome. Anything. So I'll hit you up. Sounds good, my friend. All right, man. Thank you, Mark. Have a good one. Thank you.